Ladies and gentlemen, a uh, very warm welcome to what is the first uh, in this year's uh, series of Franco-British uh, lectures, the Franco-British lecture series, which has now been running for four years, the beginning of the fourth year, uh, and, uh, uh, and which enjoys the support of the French Embassy. Um, and is really, must be seen, I think, in the context of a remarkable level of collaboration between uh, the LSE in general, the European Institute in particular, um, and, um, and Sciences Po in Paris, which is our partner institution, as you probably know, in France. Um, Sciences Po, uh, well, we have, uh, just to give you a sense, there were a Franco-British relationship. We have some 400 students this year uh, at the LSE, uh, French students, which is really quite remarkable. We run four double master's degrees uh, with Sciences Po. <coughs> Uh, and we're also very lucky to have a joint, uh, an alliance professor, LSE Sciences Po alliance professor, who this year, as last year, was Professor Marie Mandras, who's a distinguished Russia uh, expert. So at all sorts of levels, the relationship continues to thicken and to deepen, uh, very strongly encouraged by the French Embassy Foreign Ministry, for which we are extremely grateful and delighted that Philippe Lam, uh, who enables all this in the French Embassy, is with us, is with us tonight. So... Um, to the main business. Well, we're always very keen to talent spot for our public lecture series at LSE, um, as, you, as you know, and uh, we were delighted that Jan Algan accepted our invitation to come and speak to us um, uh, tonight. Um, he's uh, uh, a serious risk, I think, of becoming a, a public intellectual in France. Uh, maybe this is bad timing, and it seems to me that compared with the last 40, 50 years, public intellectuals in France, perhaps not before time, are not uh, uh, revered quite so uncritically, but it's also just at the time we in Britain are starting to get rather more accustomed and decided we quite like the idea of public intellectuals, or at least we're beguiled by them to an extent, because we always used to be very snooty and dismissive of such, of such uh, characters. But why do I say this, this level of public recognition? Well, that's because... Uh, uh, Jan Algar has really had a stellar <coughs> career to date, and that is only just to date. He is Professor of Economics at Sciences Po, uh, as you would have seen from the literature. He's taught at uh, Paris 1 and Paris Est. He's been a visiting, uh, visiting scholar at MIT uh, and at Harvard. Uh, this year, he won the award for Best Young French Economist, uh, and also the Best French Book on Economics, um, and the Best French Essay. Um, this is for his most recent publication called La Société de Défiance, Comment le modèle social français s'auto-détruit. Uh, he has written extensively on uh, social insurance, on employment, uh, on lab labor markets, but particularly on the interaction between policy instruments in those, uh, in those sectors um, and civic culture, uh, including family culture and looking at such questions of social capital such as trust. Uh, it's a fascinating interface that he lives at and explores uh, already with great distinction. Um, and he's going to talk to us tonight, um, as you know, um, about whether Europeans, uh, doesn't say it up there, but anyway, you've seen the title, Are Europeans Heading Towards the Same Economy? So without further ado, Jan, we look forward to you. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for this presentation. I will try to live up to this reputation. Uh, thank you very much for coming. It's a great honor to be here. 
So actually, uh, I'm an economist, so uh, I should apologize for that, but I'm an economist who try to understand the relationship between uh, precisely culture in general and much more specifically uh, beliefs, such as beliefs in cooperation, like trust or civicness, with economic outcomes, uh, individual uh, behavior, but also the, the impact of uh, trust on uh, economic development or institutions or happiness. And so actually the, the first title of, the, of this talk was about uh, the heading of um, your foreign country to the same system, you, uh, meaning that actually I'm quite interested in uh, analyzing to what extent heterogeneity and cultural heterogeneity uh, across countries could explain uh, actually the cross-country differences in the European social uh, welfare systems. So I will try to, um, to explain uh, part of this relationship. Now, the key thing is that uh, for a long time, uh, economists have been quite reluctant to, to look at the interplay between culture and uh, institutional economics. Part of the reason is maybe that economists are <coughs> narrow-minded, but uh, the main reason uh, for me is that actually we were lacking uh, for quantitative data about belief, about culture, that we could systematically compare uh, with economic outcomes, and we were lacking also of uh, clean identification strategy to look at the causal impact of culture on economic outcomes, and the other way around on how economic policy could influence culture and beliefs. And so typically the talk uh, today will be to look at the interplay between um, culture, institution, and economics, I will have a much more narrow focus on the interplay between trust, states, and markets with three key questions. The first one will be to try to understand how does social capital influence the attitudes towards the state and towards the market. And by social capital, I will have a narrow definition uh, of social capital, which is beliefs in cooperation for uh, mutual uh, investment. So I will try to see to what extent countries with different level of trust could actually call for different level of regulation or different uh, level of uh, free market economies. And as you will see, uh, in a cross uh, section of countries, there is a strong correlation between the extent of social capital and the extent of regulation, meaning that actually people countries where the level of distrust in order is quite high are also countries where the demand for regulation is quite high. And I will try to explain this, uh, um, this relationship. The second key uh, feature will be also to explain a second puzzle is that actually countries where the level of distrust is really high uh, will ask for more demand for, for more regulation, but countries with distrust in government is quite high, also demand more government regulation rather than less. If I was a Swedish guy, I, will I trust a lot the government, and I will understand that the Swedish could ask for much more state regulation. But actually, this is not the case. It is precisely in countries where distrust in government is really high that the demand for regulation is really high. And so, according to me, it is key puzzle in political science, in political economy, and I will try to explain, to provide rationale for this uh, relationship. And I will also try to look at the relationship the, the other way around, 
and to try to identify what is the impact of regulation and of state intervention on belief, especially on uh, cooperative attitudes. So I'm really interested in the um, causal relationship running in both directions between trust, institution, and economics. So to a certain extent, this is, I will present you a synthesis of different papers and uh, I will be, um, so I will, each time I will make much more precise uh, which article I'm uh, focusing on. So even if uh, we are trying to combine um, ideas about social capital and institution economy in an apparently novel way, Obviously, we are following a long literature, and uh, especially there is the, the first trend of the literature our work uh, are related to is the literature focusing on trust and social capital with seminal work in uh, anthropology, history, or sociology with uh, people like Bonfield, uh, who was the, one, the first one to, to make the case that there's a big difference between uh, limited trust, meaning trust only actually... Um, confined to the narrow Nesborough or to the relatives, uh, as opposed to generalized uh, morality, meaning like uh, trust in foreigners, in strangers. And Banfield was making the case that there is a strong difference in Italian villages between the two kinds of trust. And we call limited uh, morality as amoral familism. And he was the first one to, to show that actually it can have this kind of differences could explain a lot uh, the lag in economic development of regions where trust uh, was uh, quite limited. So there are a lot of papers by sociologists like Col uh, Coleman or Putnam. So economists have tried precisely to look at the relationship more systematically between trust and uh, economic outcomes. Typically what economics will do is to use international social survey where you have some question about the level of trust or the level of civicness. One of the most well-known question in trust is uh, the one given in the World Value Survey, an international social survey, saying in general, would you think that you can trust, in general, do you think you can trust other or you, you are, or you, or you cannot be uh, too careful dealing with others? And so typically, the economists will use this kind of indicators to look at the relationship between typically the size of organization with uh, a paper by Laporta and André Schleifer and Scoy author, or to look at the relationship between growth uh, of countries with a paper by Knack uh, and Kiefer, and uh, so on. And new papers are also trying to, to identify not only a causal relationship between trust and economic development, but much more a causal link with paper by, for instance, there are Italian guys with uh, Luigi Ghizzo, Luigi Zingales, and Paola Sampienza, or we have tried to do some work also with uh, a co-author, Pierre Caric, on this, um, on this uh, uh, field. Now, the second uh, literature uh, I will uh, focus on is the demand for regulation. So the, the, there is a seminal paper uh, by Ed Gleiser and uh, André Schleifer showing that actually uh, um, the rise of the regulatory state in the US at the end of the 19th century might be linked to the perceived unfairness of the social order by that time. And so uh, André is making uh, the case, and I will show you that actually uh, social capital could also explain uh, the implementation of a regulatory state. 
Now, the third literature is quite important. It's much more new branded to a certain extent in economics. is to look at the co-evolution of beliefs and uh, policies. So this new literature not only makes the case that beliefs could shape the demand for policies, but the relationship could also go the other way around, meaning that policies could influence beliefs. And there is a seminal paper by Thomas Piketty uh, showing the, the co-evolution of fiscal policies and beliefs um, in fairness of, uh, of the system. And we are doing also some work that I will present to uh, you now about the, the impact of state regulation, for instance, of wages on uh, beliefs in cooperation and social on uh, the civil society. This is a joint paper with Philippe uh, Aguillon and Pierre Cahuc, uh, where we show that actually when the state regulates uh, everything on the labor market, it might code out uni unionization rate and the civil society, and people might have much less incentives actually to invest in association and to try to experiment with social dialogue. So we look at this kind of two uh, of relationship. And the, the second uh, paper which I will focus on is regulation and distrust, a paper also with Pierre, Philippe Aguillon, and André Schleifer, where we show that actually regulation could, or deregulation could shape the extent of cooperation within the society. And so I will try to explain this uh, relationship. So uh, let me start by the big picture. The big picture uh, has to do with the correlation between uh, trust, market, and the state. So how uh, do we measure social capital? In general, we focus on an international social uh, uh, survey called the World Value Survey, which cover uh, different waves starting back to the early 80s, and trust in other is uh, measured by the following question. Generally speaking, would you say that most people can be trusted or that you need to be very careful in dealing with people? You can also measure the extent of civicness with this kind of question. Do you think that it is justifiable to accept bribes in the course of one's own duties or to cheat on government benefit, on taxes, and so on and so on, okay? And you can also measure trust in institutions with questions on the like, do you have confidence in major companies, unions, legal system, the parliament, or civil servants? So the first, uh, the first thing I would like to, to stress is that there is a huge heterogeneity in uh, precisely social capital or interest or civicness measured in this uh, international social survey. Just take the example of uh, civicness. So here, I'm reporting, this is the mean reply to the question, do you think it can, be never, it can never be justified or something in between to claim government state benefit to which you have no rights, okay? And so the question is between one for never justifiable up to 10 for always justifiable, and here I'm focusing on a dummy variable, one being the share of people who says it's never justifiable. Okay, and so what you can see that, so the Danish guy and the Nordic guys in general are the good guys. For example, for a Danish guy, more than 80% of Danish would say that this is completely unjustifiable. Unfortunately, when you look, so France is really on your far right. So in France, you will have like uh, one, of, one out of three uh, citizens would say that, who consider that it is not never justifiable. So I hope there's good guys in the audience. Uh, so Greeks are even uh, worse. 
in general, there is so Anglo-Saxon countries or continental European countries are in the middle. There are some outliers. You could have thought that actually Italian uh, Italian guys would be much closer to France. So actually, there is a trick when you ask Italian guys. So Italian guys will say it's it's really unjustifiable, okay, on average. But when you ask Italian guys, well, but do you think that uh, maybe the other citizens in Italy are cheating all the time on uh, government benefits? They will say yes, no doubt. So maybe they are also <laughs> cheating on the survey. So this is the problem. Now, the key thing is that there is a real heterogeneity, and this heterogeneity is not linked to difference in uh, religious affiliations or income and so on. Obviously, this kind of individual characteristic could shape your beliefs, but what we really see in this data is that your beliefs are much more shaped by the country-specific effect. Um, effect. So this is what I, sh I show you here. When you use this kind of database, and you try to explain the individual answer controlling for individual, a large bunch of individual characteristics, and you add the country fixed effect, okay, measuring the specificity of the country and how the specificity is correlated to your, to your own beliefs, you can see that actually uh, this country fixed effect explains a lot of your answer. So here, Denmark is considered as, as a reference country, and so what I measure here is that here, for instance, typically I think, well, if you take a French guy who has the same individual characteristic as a Danish guy, what is the probability that he would say that it is never justifiable to cheat on uh, taxes or on government benefits, knowing that he is living in France rather than in Denmark, you see? And so you can see that the effect is quite huge and much higher compared to in the, the, the impact of individual characteristics. For instance, the, the probability to answer it's never justifiable is uh, like more than 40% uh, lower uh, when you live in France compared to, to, to Denmark. So there's a huge heterogeneity in civicness and trust. I will show you trust, and this heterogeneity is really linked to specific uh, country um, uh, effect. Now, uh, I will also focus on the extent of regulation in these different countries to see the interplay between beliefs, incorporation, and the extent of regulation. And for this purpose, I will use quite standard measure of regulation, especially I will focus on the product Product market uh, regulation with an indicator provided by the World Bank, uh, with um, based on initial paper by John Koff and a bunch of co-authors with Andre Schleifer. Here we measure the number of steps to open a business legally, and so there is a, a really large heterogeneity in this step. For instance, typically it used to be the case in France that you need at least. Uh, 12 or 14 steps to open a business, okay? So you need a, a stamps, you need to report to the national, um, to, to the social security, to the national administration, and so on. Well, actually, the number of steps are quite low in Nordic countries or in Anglo-Saxon countries. We will measure labor market regulation with the employment rigidity index coming from, uh, also from the World Bank to a certain extent. And this employment rigidity index uh, is uh, measured, especially the difficulty to fire people uh, in the different countries. So let me show you uh, the relationship. This is just cross-country correlation at this stage. I'm not talking about causality and so on. So here, I'm calculating on the x-axis the average 
the, the country uh, average uh, share of people who will say that they distrust others. Okay, so I'm focusing on the different ways of the world value survey, starting from the early 80s. And you could see, so like typically, for instance, the, the share of people who distrust other in Nordic countries is quite high, while the share is really, uh, so it's quite low, sorry. Uh, and at the other extreme, people who say that they distrust other, the share of people saying that they distrust other is much higher on average, either in Latin American countries like Brazil uh, and so on, in African countries, also in Mediterranean countries like uh, Italy or France, so I don't see where France is, but uh, believe me, it's uh, on this part of the slide. And you can see that actually, so on the left uh, axis, I'm reporting the log of the number of uh, steps to open a business. And you can see so that actually the regulation of country is quite low in countries precisely where the level of distrust is low. On the contrary, uh, when distrust is really high, regulation of country is also quite high. Okay, and you have exactly the same relationship when you look at the, uh, at the rigidity of employment index or at uh, court formalism, and I will go back to that. I will just want to make one point. Here, the correlation is between regulation and distrust or uncivicness. It's not about redistribution. Okay, so typically, when you look at some countries, Nordic countries regulate much less their labor market or their uh, good, uh, their product market. This is the well-known flexi security uh, system. But actually, they redistribute a lot, okay? And they insure a lot. And typically, there is a, a relationship between civicness and redistribution. For instance, here I'm uh, focusing on a paper we wrote with uh, Pierre Cahuc uh, called Civic Virtue and uh, Labor Market Institution, where we are making the case that uh, the Danish can implement quite a, the flexi security system and a really generous unemployment benefit system. Why? Because they really trust each other. And if you ask people, uh, French people, do you want to increase unemployment benefit? Actually, uh, according to a last survey two years ago, 70% of the French would say, no, I would oppose an increase in unemployment benefit. And when you, you ask them why, because they are completely, they are convinced that unemployment benefit makes people completely lazy. Even if it's, if it's not true, I mean, we can measure it in some, uh, some papers have measured it. But uh, the, the, the belief can actually influence your, your demand for, for redistribution. And this is what I showed you here. Here I'm measuring. So Denmark is considered as the reference country for the level of civicness, okay, on the um, x-axis. And here I'm looking. So civicness is measured by the, the probability that you will think that it is uh, unjustifiable to cheat on government benefit, okay. And here. When you are, I measure the marginal country fixed effect, meaning what is uh, the impact of living typically in France on your probability compared to the amount that you think it can be justified to cheat on government benefits. So all the countries are on the left of Denmark, meaning that they are, the, level, the average level of civicness is much lower compared to Denmark. But what you can see is that it is precisely in the countries where the level of civicness is low that the redistribution in 
favor of the unemployed, which is measured here on the left uh, axis. This is where the redistribution is also the lowest. Okay, so just to make the case that here I'm focusing, I will focus on the relationship between regulation and social capital. And in, it's not the same relationship when you are looking at redistribution. Nordic countries regulate not that much, but they redistribute a lot. And this redistribution has also to do with social capital. So now, uh, when you control for a bunch of variables, so here I'm still running cross-country uh, regression, where I try to explain, for instance, typically uh, the correlation between the extent of regulation of product market and the average uh, level of distrust uh, at the country level by controlling for different uh, aggregate variables like the GDP per capita, education, and so on. And you, you can see that the correlation is still statistically significant and positive. And if you look at different uh, measures of uncivicness, of distrust, injustice, and so on, you find the same correlation. But what is quite puzzling is that when you look at the, at the correlation between regulation of product market and distrust in, in the state in general, you also find a positive correlation. Typically here, I use a different question about distrust in civil servants or distrust in parliament. Okay. And what you can see that in countries where distrust in parliament or distrust in civil servants is quite high, these countries also implement a really high regulation of labor of a product market. So my correlation here is statistically significant and is positive. So it's quite a puzzle. Countries where actually distrust in civil servants or distrust in the state is high are also countries where government regulation is quite high. So, I mean, the causality could run in both directions, and what we will try to do precisely is to try to uh, disentangle the different uh, relationships. Okay, so let me start by the first, uh, the first relationship going from distrust to the demand for regulation. So what I will try to do here is to, to show you that uh, countries where distrust is really high demand more uh, government regulation. And I will try to provide a rationale for that. So uh, let me just show you uh, the logic of the model. So this is, uh, uh, this part comes from a paper, Regulation and Distrust. Uh, I don't show you the whole model, I just want to provide the logic of the model with this graph. What I will try to say here, to try to understand the puzzle, uh, why is it the case that countries where distress is high demand more government regulation? Uh, I will try to provide a really simple model where actually uh, people can produce, okay. but depending on the level of civicness, when they produce, they could also generate negative externalities, like polluting, okay, or throwing litters, and so on. So when you are in an environment where social capital or civicness is quite low, negative externalities of firms or of people can be quite high. Okay? So there is a trade-off. Obviously, when people are really civic, uh, it might be the ne negative externalities are low, so it will be better actually not to restrict the entry uh, on the product market and people could produce much more. 
But when actually people are quite uncivic, when they produce, they can produce also a lot of negative uh, externalities. And in this case, actually, your social welfare can be really low. And this is what I represent here. So on the, on the x-axis, I represent the share of educated individuals, meaning the share of individuals who have, been, who have received the civic education. Okay? So the share of people who do not impose negative externalities on others. Here, I represent the social welfare so on the y-axis. And the social welfare depends on the amount of production, but also on the amount of negative externalities. And these two lines are the social welfare that you can get when you are living in a society in which you authorize all productive activities. Okay, so there is no, reg there is no regulation of product market. And here it is the social welfare that you can get when you regulate the product market. And what I can, what, what I try to, to rationalize here is to say, well, when you are in an economy where the share of civic people is quite high, you will be better off in an economy, social welfare will be higher in an economy where you authorize uh, productive activities. Why? Because production will be really high. You don't restrict production. And negative externalities are really low because people really behave in a cooperative way. Okay? Now, the problem, so you will prefer <coughs> authorization compared to regulation. Now, the problem is that when you are living in a country where social capital, where civicness is really low, actually, the negative externalities imposed by people will be really high. So you will be better off under a regime where you regulate activities, even if production is lower, because you will restrict the entry into the product market. But you will be better off because negative externalities offset the value added of production. So people will choose regulation rather than authorization. So it can explain, actually, to a certain extent, why people, even if they distrust the government, would like to have some regulation. Because precisely, regulation has a positive effect. It can limit the entry of the most inefficient producer. And so you can get rid part of the negative externality of people. To put it to, in a other way, let me take the example of the reform of uh, university autonomy in France. So last year, uh, there was a big uh, movement opposing a reform proposed by the government uh, to increase the autonomy uh, within the different universities. And actually, the government was quite puzzled by this opposition. Why? Because in general, this opposition was coming from faculty. And I don't know about you, but in France, all the faculty distrust the government. They distrust, obviously, Nicolas Sarkozy, but in general, they distrust the state. Okay? But what was quite puzzling is that they really distrust the state. They think that centralization of decisions are completely inefficient. Okay? But when you propose them autonomy, they think that it will be even worse with autonomy. So how can you uh, understand that? Part of this paper of this uh, talk is precisely to try to, to combine this uh, and to, to, to solve this puzzle, is that actually all the faculty or all the workers in university distrust even more local authorities of the dean okay, uh, than uh, the government. So th they really fear and they really, they really fear the unfairness of the local authorities. Local authorities can be the authorities of a firm 
or the authority of a dean, and so they will prefer direct centralization and government regulation, even if it's less efficient, but at least it can actually uh, limit the negative externalities imposed by local authorities. So this is part of the argument. Uh, and so to, to show you that it is n not just words, uh, I will try to document to provide some meat about this relationship by using some question in the World Value Survey Database uh, regarding uh, attitudes towards competition and government regulation. So here's a bunch of uh, questions. So people are asked, do you think that competition is good, it stimulates people to work hard and develop new ideas, or competition is harmful, it brings out the worst in people? Uh, you also have questions like government should give freedom to firm or should control firm, or in democracy that the economic system runs necessarily badly, and so on and so on. And we also have some questions, typically in the International Social Survey prog uh, Program, about direct government regulation, whether or not people consider that the state should control prices by law or should control wages by law, and so on. Okay? So what you can see, first, if I look at the aggregate picture, okay, <coughs> just in terms of correlation, you can see that actually countries where the level of distress is much higher are also countries where the share of people who think that government should control wage by law or should control prices by law and so on is also uh, more uh, important. Okay, so there's a positive correlation between distrust and the demand for regulation. Uh, you also have a positive correlation between the demand for regulation and actually the, the institution at works in the country, typically in countries where the share of people, uh, the share of people thinking that government should control price by law is really high, are also countries where the regulation of country is really high. So if you want to understand this relationship, you really need to understand actually the political support of regulation of country. And this is precisely what we will do. So here, here is just about correlation, okay? So I agree, you don't have to, to trust uh, all this correlation and uh, maybe they are not really insightful. So what we'll do is that we will go to micro uh, estimates where we can control for individual characteristics, but we can also control for country fixed effect, meaning that we can control for a lot of national specificities, specificities which could explain the extent of regulation. Okay? Uh, so let me, uh, let me go through this table. So here I'm using the World Value Survey, all the ways of the world, world Value Survey, and I'm looking at the relationship between distrust in order or distrust in uh, legal systems, civil servants, and companies, and the probability at the individual level that you will think that competition is harmful or that government should control firms and so on. Okay? So what you can see first. So I'm controlling for different individual characteristics and country fixed effect. What you can see first on this column is that the fact to distrust others at the individual level is positively correlated with the fact that you will consider competition as harmful, okay? Secondly, you can also see that people who, uh, so this is the first thing, if you want to, 
to lure in people to trust in market economy, you really need social capital between citizens. You really need citizens to trust each other. Otherwise, they will think that actually free market is a jungle and uh, competition is really harmful. The second interesting result is that actually you also have, there's also a positive correlation between the fact that you distrust the legal system or you distrust the civil servants and the probability that you think that competition is harmful. It means that when people really distrust the legal structure, the legal enforcement, they really distrust competition. So it's really close to this uh, uh, Smithian idea that you really need good, actually, um, you, you need efficient uh, institutional uh, structure uh, in order to lure in people and to um, to actually lure the, the political support of people in favor of uh, markets. And the third result, which is quite, uh, I mean, the, the third interesting result is that when people distrust the legal system or distrust the civil servants or distrust companies, but uh, what is much more puzzling is distrust legal system and distrust civil servants, people also, at the individual level, tend to consider that government should control firms or government should take more responsibility. Okay, so distress in legal structure uh, turns people to want more government regulation rather than less. And to explain this is that in general, uh, people distrust even more companies than government. And this is why, in general, they will tend to support government intervention. So this is the first key result where I try to understand the link between distrust and the demand for regulation. Now, uh, the second key aspect is to try to understand how regulation or deregulation and free markets could influence your own beliefs in cooperation. So this is the third step of uh, this presentation. I try to look at the relationship the other way around and to look at the causal impact, potentially causal effect of regulation on social capital. Okay, so it's quite important if you want to build uh, and to foster pro-social behavior in your country, you really need to figure out what are the good public policy which could actually create social capital in a society. Okay, so I'm sorry about it. I will not give you any clues about what are the good policy, but I will give some hint about what are the bad policy. And actually, what we will say here is that. Uh, if you deregulate markets in a low trust environment, actually you can increase distrust and you can even, um, so you can change beliefs in cooperation, but with, in the bad uh, way, with side effects, is that you can really increase distrust in other and distrust in institutions. So how can I measure this? Let me go back, so you see that to identify the causal effect of policies on social capital is quite hard. You need to find uh, an exogenous variation, a natural experiment where policy change, and you can really identify that it is this change in policy that affects social capital and not other things around in the environment. So how do we do that? We use a natural experiment, and this natural experiment comes from the deregulation in former socialist uh, countries. And so what we will see is these countries were starting from a really low level of social capital, 
deregulation was really sharp, and you will see to what extent this deregulation has changed the cooperative attitudes of people in uh, Eastern European countries. Okay, and let me just give you uh, the, the, the logic of uh, the argument. I'm going back to the model. Once again, I just give you uh, uh, a picture to understand this logic. So, assume that you are starting in a country where social capital is low, civic education of people is really low, okay? And you start from a point where there is no private production. So this is why I start from the horizontal line. Here, production, individual production, individual entrepreneurship is zero. You are in a planned economy, nobody produced, there is, uh, the state produces everything. Okay. And I assume that starting from a low social capital environment, you start to deregulate. What will happen? Actually, if you start from a low social capital, negative externalities will be really high. You let people, you, you let individual entrepreneurs produce, but since they are not really civic, they generate a lot of negative externalities. They might be really corrupt and ask for bribes to have some uh, actually authorization to produce. And what would happen? Actually, the citizen will suffer from the negative externalities and they will ask for more regulation. They will ask for going back to state regulation. And they will also start to disinvest in civic education of the children. Why? Because when you are in an environment where corruption is really high and you are really, uh, you are really affected by negative externalities, you try actually to train your children not to be too much affected by uh, 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 negative externalities. And so the prediction of this model is that starting from a low <coughs> social capital environment, if you deregulate, people will ask for more regulation and will start to since they are in a corrupted environment, they will disinvest in the education, uh, in the civic education of their, of their children. And this is precisely what I will try to test now. So to do that, I still use the world value surveys in which, uh, and I will compare the evolution of trust and the demand for regulation between two waves, the wave 1990, and the wave 2000. So we, we do, the, pro, the World Value Survey provides these two ways. And I will look at the evolution of attitudes between these two ways, okay? And I will use all the question on distrust and the demand for regulation, and I will also use a question on corruption. Do you think it can always be justified or not to uh, accept bribes in the course of your duties? So, the first point of the argument is that uh, transition economies were really economies where social capital was low at the beginning. So this is precisely what I show you here. I'm focusing on the wave 1990 of the World Value Survey. I'm running uh, individual estimates on the probability that people distrust others. I control for individual characteristics, but also for the country fixed effect, for the, in, the impact of the country uh, of residence of the individual. And so here what I'm reporting is relative to people who, who have the same individual characteristic as others, but who are living in Sweden, what is the probability that you would distrust others when you are living in Romania, for instance, okay? 
And what you can see is that in general, socialist countries, so we consider France as a socialist country here, in general, transition economies, the, the fact to live in a transition economy in 1990 increased a lot your probability to distrust other compared to other OECD countries. Okay? So in general, social capital was quite low in these countries at the beginning. And there are a lot of studies showing that actually social capital was quite low in uh, socialist countries. Now, starting from a low social capital and from a low level of uh, civicness, uh, what is the impact of deregulation? To measure this, what we will do is that we still run individual estimates, okay, microestimates. I try to, uh, so I focus on the two waves, 1990 and 2000, and I'm looking at the evolution of distrust in transition economies compared to OECD countries. Okay, so what I'm showing in this table here, the wave to southern captured the evolution of distrust in OECD countries. The interactive term between the fact to be transition economies and the wave 2000 measure the relative increase or the, the relative variation in distrust in transition economies compared to OECD countries. So typically here, uh, 0.063 means that the fact to live in a transition economy increases by 6.3% more compared to people living in OECD countries, your level of distrust, okay? So what you can see is that each time, distrust has increased relatively much more in transition economies, either distrust in order, distrust in civil servants, or in justice or in companies, this, this different uh, kind of distrust has increased much more in, OECD, in transition economies compared to uh, OECD countries and with a statistically significant effect, okay? And you can also see that actually there has been a huge increase uh, in the probability to think that competition is harmful or that the government should run business. So I'm using the same strategy. I'm focusing on the two waves. The wave 2000 captured the evolution of your attitudes toward competition or government regulation in OECD countries, and the interactive term transition times wave 2000 measure the additional increase in your attitudes toward competition in transition economies. And you can see that actually, the fact to live in a transition economy has increased much more your aversion against competition and your demand for government regulation. Okay? Just an interesting point is that here you can see that the Gini index has also a key effect. So we are con controlling for different things which could obviously explain the demand, for the evolution of the, the evolution of the attitudes toward competition. Part of the evolution could be linked to the evolution of inequalities. If you, after the regulation, inequalities increases a lot. Uh, people might consider that competition is really bad and that government should regulate much more. And this is precisely what you see. Uh, countries where the gene index has increased a lot are also countries where, where the shelf, where you, th you will think much more often that competition is harmful. So <laughs> if you deregulate and you let inequalities actually in uh, increasing, distress will, uh, will increase um, a lot. 
you, we also have some question about uh, corruption. And you can see that, uh, so I'm focusing on the question, do you think that it is justifiable to accept bribes or to cheat on taxes? And what you can see is that actually the fact to live in a transition economy has increased. So this is the uh, 0.062 has increased uh, the probability that you think to, that it is justifiable to cheat uh, on taxes or to accept bribes. And when you compare to OECD countries, the, which is captured by the way 2000 alone, you can see that actually civicness has decreased uh, within this period in OECD countries. So you really have um, a heterogeneity in the evolution of uh, civic attitudes in transition economies compared to uh, OECD countries. For those of you who really don't like tables, I also report a graph. So this is exactly the same thing. Here I'm, I'm focusing on the relative evolution of distrust in order between 2000, between 1990 and 2000 in transition economy and OECD countries. And you can see that in general, distrust increased much more in transition economies. And civicness uh, actually has uh, decreased or uncivicness has increased in transition economy, people who consider that justifiable to accept bribes, uh, is, uh, they will consider it as justifiable much more often in 2000 compared to 1990. Okay, and in general, people facing this increase in corruption and this increase in uncivicness will demand for more government regulation and to go back to the initial uh, planning system. This is what uh, the data are telling us. So now the last thing is, uh, what, what is the mechanism at work between uh, deregulation and the evolution of belief? What we try to do uh, in this paper with uh, Pierre Cahuc, Philippe Aguillon, and André Schleifer is to show that uh, part of the channel is going through education, especially family education. To put it in different ways, Actually, uncivicness increase when you deregulate an economy because parents faced with an environment with a lot of corruption will start to disinvest in uh, civic education. And I will try to document this by looking at this kind of question on education. So the World Value Survey uh, provide question about uh, what are the main uh, quality that the, the parents would like to teach to their children. For instance, you have this question, here is a list of qualities which children can be encouraged to learn at home. Which, if any, do you consider to be especially important? Tolerance and respect for other people or unselfishness and so on and so on. And so first one you can see that there is a strong correlation between the extent of distrust in the different countries and the share of people who think that children should be encouraged to learn tolerance and respect. Okay, so civic education, countries where civic education is quite high is a priority for the parents are also countries where the average level of distrust is quite low. Now, what is quite puzzling is that if you use exactly the same trick as uh, before, that is if you look at the ev evolution of attitudes towards civic education in transition economies compared to OECD countries, 
you will see that actually civic education has decreased in transition economies compared to OECD countries. So I do exactly the same thing. I'm focusing on the two waves, 1990 and 2000. I'm running individual macro estimates and I'm looking at the relative evolution of civic education compared to uh, in transition economy compared to OECD countries. And what you can see here is that in transition economies, education of, uh, of respect and surveillance has decreased within this period. And uh, the fact to think that you should uh, educate, you should teach to your children and self-finish has also decreased in transition economies while it has increased during this period in OECD countries. So you really have the feeling that people have started to disinvest in civic education. So now the last thing of this, uh, of this presentation is uh, to be sure that actually this natural experiment of deregulation is really a clean experiment. Because maybe some of you are the referees of the paper, so you really know the argument. Uh, a lot of people have actually criticized uh, this kind of approach by saying, well, but who cares about deregulation and transition? Because transition, transition economies is not only about deregulation, a lot of things could have changed with transition. Obviously, deregulation has increased, but it's also a social chaos. You could have uh, also some old people who are uh, wishing to go back to the good old days where employment was stable and so on and so on. So how can you be sure that this natural experiment of transition economies is really linked to a deregulation and to a decrease in civic education? And actually to, to try to convince uh, or to, to provide more evidence on this uh, channel, what we are trying to do is to look at the evolution of distrust, of civicness, but among cohorts. To put it, to put it differently, if to, the story about the decrease in distrust in transition economies is about the old days hypothesis, we should find that the decrease in distress is much higher among old people because those are the people who used to be in a good position under the socialist uh, system. Now, if actually the story much goes much more through uh, education and civ of civicness among the young cohort, you should find that the decrease in distress and the decrease in civicness is much higher among young cohort. And so this is precisely what we are trying to do here. We are still comparing the two waves, 1990 and 2000. We are looking at the attitudes considered uh, relative to, to civic education within the family or attitude towards uncivicness or distrust order. And we compare, so the reference group is all people in transition economies and the interactive terms age times wave times transitions measure the relative evolution of attitudes of younger people in transition economies compared to old people. And what you can see is that in general, uh, civic, ed civic education within the family has decreased as a key priority, has decreased much more among the young cohort compared to the old cohort. This is the negative sign here for the age uh, uh, 16, 24. Uncivicness has decreased more and distress in other has 
has also decreased more among young cohorts compared to old cohorts. So we really have the feeling that there is a heterogeneity in the evolution of dispersed organ cohorts, and actually distress has decreased, has increased much more among the, the young, which might be linked to uh, a decrease in uh, civic education. So I will stop here by saying just uh, three words. The first thing is that when we are uh, thinking about uh, European social models and the heterogeneity of uh, institution, it's really important actually to look at uh, differences in uh, in beliefs, in culture, and especially differences in trust. And people are really puzzled in general by the strong opposition coming from uh, Southern European countries against reform and uh, against deregulation, but it might also be linked to the level of distrust in these countries. Uh, these countries uh, are really characterized by a low level of trust of citizens between each other, a low level of trust between the, uh, from the citizens towards their institutions. So it's really hard to ask them to go directly to a free market or to a flexi-security system. And we can understand the opposition and, uh, uh, of this citizen. So market economy really needs social capital, not only if you want to explain the growth or the economic development, okay? but also if you want to think about the institutional design of this country. I just make one point. Actually, a lot of, of papers have, have made the point that uh, trust is, is a key thing to explain economic development. And I think it's even more true when you are looking at new, uh, the new economy of innovation. Economy of innovation really relies on horizontal uh, relationship within firms. You really need to delegate, actually, and uh, to let people take initiatives. But you can do that only if you trust others. And firms where the level of trust is much higher between workers and between workers and managers are also firms in which innovation, R&D, and so on is much higher. So trust is really is a key component of growth, of innovation. But trust is also a key component to try to understand the different uh, institution um, and the cross-country heterogeneity in uh, institution. Now, uh, the key thing is how can you find a third way uh, between states and, uh, and markets? And what kind of policies you could implement in order to foster pro-social behavior, behavior in the different uh, countries? So I would be happy to uh, to have some discussions with you and I would be heavy, happy to have some solutions because I'm lacking of solutions, actually. But uh, in this paper, we were focusing on uh, family education. Obviously, there is a role for formal education, okay, what you teach at school. And this is part of a program with uh, a pedio. Uh, so this is with uh, Richard Tremblay. So Richard Tremblay is... Uh, uh, He's uh, actually he's working at a hospital uh, devoted to, to children and to the development of pro-social behavior within children. And uh, Richard Tremblay really made the case that uh, you learn to cooperate with others really at your early childhood. And one of the key things not only come from 
the family environment, obviously, but also on the importance put on pro-social behavior in schools. And especially what we are trying to do with Richard, we are running randomized experiment with uh, this in Cretel, is that uh, part of the reason why countries like France are really lacking uh, of trust is because uh, in the early childhood, education only put the emphasis on cognitive skills. Typically, when you look at the curricula of the Ministry of Education in France, okay, even when you are three years old or four years old, there's nothing about cooperation. Everything is about preschool program to develop your cognitive skills and to be ready uh, for school. When you look at Finland or Nordic countries, there's nothing about cognitive skills. They put only the emphasis on pro-social behavior, how to cooperate with your young roommates and so on. And so I think that part of the explanation is that when you have a really uh, hierarchical education system like in France, uh, where if you do not do Ecole Normale Supérieure and Ecole Polytechnique, uh, you just have uh, to kill yourself, uh, obviously it's really hard to try to, to develop a cooperation uh, in this framework. So I'm just talking about education. There are obviously a lot of other policies areas, and I will be really happy to talk uh, about this. Uh, we wrote a book with Pierre Cahuc trying to to list the different uh, policies which could be responsible for the low trust of a uh, thousand European countries. And I will say a last word about a key relationship between trust and happiness. For the moment, I'm fo I was focusing on economic or institutional outcomes, but maybe the most important impact of social capital and of trust might be on happiness and well-being. So there is a strong correlation between the level of trust in a country and the level of happiness or the average level of uh, depression or insomnia and so on. So we are able to measure this with a cross-country survey. And actually, I think that this theory linking distrust and uh, happiness is due to Anthony Giddens, saying that actually the contrary of trust is not distrust, it's just anguish. The fact that when you cannot trust other and you cannot trust uh, institution, you really have the feeling to live in a risky society and the level of anguish will really increase and uh, this is why uh, actually happiness will be really low. And you can see, so actually I'm trying to work on a natural experiment like that, I'm just telling you the, the story. Just take uh, the, the H1N1 uh, Flow, flu, does it make sense in yeah. English? Avian flu. That was, that was the avian flu, wasn't it? H1N1. Okay. <laughs> anyway, whatever. A flu of some sort. Okay, so, yeah. so obviously, French people never trust the institutions, okay? Especially in terms of health, uh, they always think, I mean, they might be right. The next time that uh, public authority told them that Chernobyl was uh, stopping uh, right among uh, the uh, Alps, so, uh, the mountains, so maybe you, you cannot trust. Uh, but if you, if, so, you, you are living in a risky environment with health risk, with economic risk, so this one is a health risk, so it's quite scary. But since you even don't try the public authorities, you have no authority, uh, incentives actually to, um, to prevent the diffusion of the disease. And when you compare the reaction of the Nordic countries, in Nordic countries we ask all the citizens to so take medicines and so on to be sure that uh, they will be immune uh, to get in, uh, immunized against uh, the flu. 
all the guys went there. In France, the French, so the Ministry uh, of Health told French people to, to go. She was the only one, actually, to go and to, uh, to, to, to be a miniature. So obviously, living in a, in a low uh, social capital environment where uh, you distress also the, the ability of public authorities to take in charge the risk, the economic risk or the health risk, obviously increase the level of anguish and doesn't help to, for your well-being. It's not uh, an accident if French people are the, uh, the championship of Prozac and uh, this kind of medicine. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, uh, what an absolutely fascinating uh, talk, uh, Jan. Um, LSE talent spotting triumphantly indicated. That was really quite mesmerizing, and uh, so many interesting points you've raised. We've got about 20 minutes for, for questions. Um, there's one quick one I'll bowl at you, if I may, just annoyingly exercising Chem's prerogative. Um, talked about low social trust in societies breeds a demand for high level of regulation. The regulation is then installed, and I'm thinking obviously France is a paradigm, but there are, there are others. You then have a high level of regulation. In the case of France, with a public discourse, with a lot of emphasis on equality, solidarity, and so on. And yet, having taken the appropriate measures or tried to find the institutional or policy response to these high levels of anxiety stemming from lack of trust, absolutely nothing happens. No, uh, there is no benefit derived from that at all. How do you explain that? And, and would you actually even see, see um, the role of the state in regulation as actually being entrenching a cycle of fear and, dis and distrust? Mm. So I think it may... No, I totally agree. What I would say is that it really depends on the kind of regulation. So if you are in, in countries where regulation is really transparent, you might increase uh, trust in other, you know, trust in companies. And actually, for instance, regulation in Nordic countries especially regarding competition in, uh, on the product market. So the regulation is really transparent. Uh, um, and <coughs> antitrust anti uh, laws can be really uh, tough uh, against companies. It's completely different in France, typically. So first, we do not have an independent uh, commission of uh, what we call uh, the Commission de la Concurrence uh, in France. So it's not independent, and especially the way it regulates is really uh, is not transparent at all. Typically, if you implement a lot of steps uh, to to let companies, uh, to, I mean, if you need a lot of steps to be able to open your companies, you give room potentially to bribes or to collusion between the guys who pay the steps and who will pay the public authorities to, to have the authorization. And actually in France, you have a lot, so there are a lot of studies, especially there's a wonderful studies by uh, Marianne Bertrand and uh, Francis Kramer, showing precisely that th this kind of regulation is based on some collusion at the major level, or at the human level, and actually everything is going against social welfare, meaning that it increases uh, the benefits of big companies, but in increase also the consumption price, and obviously French people are really uh, pissed off by this kind of policy because they have the feeling that once again regulation has been favorable only to some uh, specific interest. This is the same thing for taxi drivers and so on. So you might have good regulation. The, the, the key thing is to understand why France.
still choose the bad regulation rather than good regulation. Okay, what can, I, mean, I just wonder what the example of the United States tells us, because I know the United States came out quite high, not as high as the Scandinavians in terms of levels of trust, but quite high and sort of above average. It's a country with limited regulation, but strong regulation that's transparent, yeah. particularly in antitrust, where people know about it. Does, does that help entrench? Would that be an example of a kind of good transparent regulation yes, you're talking about? Yes, to a certain extent, yes. Mm. And, uh, and actually, obviously, uh, American citizens are quite worried about the level of corruption uh, and of collusion between companies and actually the, the deputy. But there is a... Uh, so, so I will develop a, a second argument, is that the, the problem with France is that uh, precisely we are um, implementing a vicious cycle to the extent that, in general, the regulation is not transparent, gives the impression to the French citizen that it's, it is only at the advantage of, of small groups. But there is also a second point is that regulation is really centralized. Uh, typically, wages are centralized by the government rather than letting unions directly uh, negotiate wages. For instance, in Nordic countries, there is no uh, minimum uh, legal minimum wage. Okay, the minimum wage, obviously, they are wage flow, but they are directly negotiated between unions. So, and the state doesn't have to intervene. So, people invest a lot in unions, and unions take care of them, provide a lot of services. In France, this is the contrary, since uh, French people distrust unions and distrust a lot entrepreneurs. They directly refer to the state to regulate minimum wage. This is one of the countries where centralization of negotiation is the much higher uh, in terms of minimum wage. But since they, only, they always turn to the state to regulate, they never try to implement a social dialogue. And so you have a kind of vicious, vicious cycle. Uh, centralization of decision pulled out the social dialogue. And since social dialogue is really weak, in general, citizens will ask for more state regulation because they don't trust the social, uh, uh, the civil society. Okay, thank you. That's a very full answer. Okay, we've got time for some questions. Um, I'd like to kick off um, over there. Is that roving mic? Hello. Yep. Oh. Sorry, just sorry. It was just the lady just over there, and then the gentleman at the back afterwards. Sorry. Come to I take it. Thank you. <coughs> Sorry for my coughing. Um, I uh, found it, of course, very interesting your uh, lecture. I just have a question. I read just an article published this year, 2009. It is an in-depth study that seems to contradict your findings. Um, it was published by Birgit V. Effinger, who did an um, in-depth study of um, how marketized social protection was accepted in Germany, and she found out that in the former socialist countries, you spoke about this former socialist countries, and you said that these countries have a very high demand for re-regulation. But she now found out in this in-depth study that it is the contrary, that in the east of Germany, marketized social protection is very much accepted, while in the west of Germany it is not at all accepted. So these kind of findings, I think, are a bit contradictory to your findings because they, they say or they say uh, as a result that the demand in the former socialist countries are uh, much higher for markets and for deregulation in East Germany than West Germany. Thank you. Okay. 
Well, actually, it's, it's quite interesting and very really interesting in uh, looking at this reference because uh, it goes against a lot of, of uh, previous findings, especially one of the, the most well-known is uh, given by a paper by Alezina. I don't know if you know this paper uh, with a funny title, uh, Goodbye Lenin or Not. And actually, so what they are looking is precisely this. They are focusing on East Germany and West Germany. And what they found is that in East Germany, the demand for government intervention and regulation is much higher, and is much higher among old people, meaning that uh, when you used to live under the socialist system, you demand for even more regulation. So I would be really happy to see um, change in attitude. It will mean that actually attitude will change, and it's, uh, to a certain extent, maybe good news. But uh, I would be, uh, so let me, at the end, I would be, uh, if you can write down uh, Thanks very much. Thank you. Uh, the gentleman at the back, am I cruelly? Thanks very much. Very interesting lecture. Um, two points. First one is uh, you said market economies work better uh, with trust and social capital. I think it's interesting in the current economic crisis where it seems the market economy doesn't value the thing upon which it rests, i.e., social capital and trust. And when there's no state, to enforce that trust, but it, it tends to eat itself because its own, its own value structure does not value it, if that makes sense. The second point would be um, the nature of regulation. I think in Britain, particularly financial services, but a range of organisations uh, tend to game any regulation. So the more it's prescribed, the more it's dictated, the more it's nailed down legally, the, the more companies can find ways around it and feel justified to find ways around it because it's so prescriptive that if you meet the prescription you've, you've met the goals even when they're well aware that by gaming it that they're actually contradicting the goals so it's almost like the more prescriptive the regulation the less likely it is to reach the outcome that you want because you're not valuing as you say trust and social capital I take your second point. It's a, it's a good example, and um, I will not congratulate it, so it's a good point. Uh, regarding the first one, you, I mean, you're totally right. I mean, the financial crisis uh, is a wonderful natural experiment also to understand the side effect of, of deregulation when you are in, in an environment with low social capital. Typically, Madoff. Madoff is a strong negative externality. I mean, if you are in financial markets where cooperation is really weak and people do not actually take into account uh, the negative externality against others, you can really completely destroy trust in uh, others and trust in the institutions, uh, financial market in this case. I totally agree. Thanks very much. Sherke Pamuk and Marco Simon. Thank you very much for this interesting talk. Um, in your analysis, you have paid attention this evening to short-term changes in these, uh, let's say, these, say, trust, distrust, uh, these, pers uh, these, let's say, perhaps culture value. But there is also a good deal of literature that perhaps emphasizes the durability and the persistence of these values across time. Perhaps. And perhaps an argument can be made, for example, that 
it was precisely because of the strength of trust and so on, say, in Northern Europe, perhaps the Industrial Revolution began in this part of the world. What do you think uh, is, are these, uh, how easily do you think these, these preferences change over time and how persistent they are? I mean, this is, a, this is a big issue. This is the issue of all the political science or focusing on social capital. Now, I mean, so I would say uh, several uh, things. The first one is that the point you are mentioning is uh, actually the opposition between Putnam 1 and Putnam 2, to a certain extent. Putnam is not aware of that, but uh, he's, uh, <laughs> he has a, a problem of dual personality because he contradicts the, uh, himself. No, so actually, so Putnam is one of the founding fathers of uh, all the social capital literature, and in his first paper, Making Democracy Work, in his first book, uh, Focusing on Italy, he was really adamant about the persistence of uh, trust, saying that actually the low level of trust that you could find in some uh, uh, thousand uh, village in Italy is linked actually to the, um, to the Middle Age, uh, and to the fact that there was no free societies in the south compared to free societies in the north. And uh, so uh, five centuries later, you still have an impact of this uh, freedom on the level of social capital. So obviously, th there is a persistent component. But uh, like five years uh, after that, Putnam was making the case that in just two or three decades, social capital were completely declining in the US. And it was uh, declining so much that people was now going to bullying uh, alone. So, so there's these two, uh, actually, uh, contradictions. So me, I totally agree that there's a person, I do agree that there's a persistent component, okay? Now, there's also a component which could evolve, which are transmitted potentially from the parents and which could evolve depending on the shocks. And the way I try to, so all my papers are trying to make the case that if you have big shocks, okay, depending on the impact of your shocks, think about World War II, two, for instance, the level of cooperation in a country could change, and then you will implement institutions, depending on your level of trust, which could actually make you be trapped in a bad equilibrium. So. Let me give you an example. So we have a paper, uh, American Economic Review paper with Pierre uh, Cahuc uh, um, looking at the long-run evolution of trust. How do we do that? It's, it, so to, to go back uh, from start. Unfortunately, we do not have international social survey going back to the early uh, 20th uh, century. So we do not know what was the level of trust in, uh, in Nordic countries, for instance, by that time. But we have some his historical evidence, uh, uh, evidence. For instance, typically, uh, Crouch, Colin Crouch will say that Nordic countries, at the end of the 19th century and the early 20th century, were precisely countries where the level of conf uh, labor conflict was the highest. So now Nordic countries are depicted at the, I mean, as a, yeah. The heaven and the paradise where uh, labor uh, relationships are really cooperative, but at the beginning of the 20th century, this were precisely the countries where the num number of strikes were used to be the highest. So, 
it, it looks like we have some evidence that uh, cooperation change. And so what we have done with Pierre, uh, just to, and I will say in uh, two words, to be able to track back the evolution of trust, since we are lacking of a cross-country international social survey, we are using a trick. We are focusing on the general social survey. The general social survey is a social survey in the US, starting from the early uh, 70s, where people are asked, to what extent do you trust others? But they are also asked the country of origin and the wave of immigration. And actually, so if you look, so it's well known in all this literature that people, in general, inherited part of their social capital, okay? meaning that family could actually influence your own level of trust. But when you look at different episodes of immigration from country of origin, so you look at American immigrants, but whose wave of immigration differ. When you look actually at different wave of immigration, you can see that the first wave of immigrants who's of, um, coming from Nordic countries are displaying much lower level of trust compared to, um, to, to French people whose immigrants were coming from the uh, early 20th century. Now, when you look at French immigrants, so at, uh, after World War II, in general, they inherited a much lower level of trust than American, uh, who's, uh, uh, than, sorry, immigrants in the US coming from, whose uh, forebears were coming from France, but the, con the wave of immigration was taking place before World War II. And typically what we are saying is that when you look at inherited trust and the way uh, at how inherited trust evolved depending on the wave of immigration, you can see that there is a lot of variation. And typically, people uh, who are coming from countries who were defeated during World War II and countries who were at war, like uh, civil war in Spain and so on, tend to have inherited much lower level of trust. And typically, this is what we say, well, well compare, for instance, England and France, maybe they used to have a, the same level of social capital before World War II, but World War II has a, been a total collapse, the, uh, a total failure of the state in France. People used to really distrust each other, each other because of the collaboration. And since World War II, French people are unable to build up trust. Why? Because trust is really low, so we have implemented bad institution, we are unable to develop trust. So by looking at this kind of interaction between macro aggregate shocks and institution, you can explain this, the change, but also why following a change, there's a persistent component. And Thank don't you. know if I was clear, but uh, yeah, that's the case. Uh, we've got time for one more question. Uh, Marco Simon. Yes, thank you very much for the very nice and interesting talk. Um, I have a question on, you probably had a few of those before, about the issue of reverse causation or endogeneity. So how much of uh, the level of trust can be actually generated by the reg regulatory state or the lack of regulation? And I understand you, you try to deal with this with using this shoot questions from the World Value Survey. So uh, the question in which the respondent is supposed to answer his or her own uh, optimal best, and you call that as a demand for regulation. 
Um, but I was wondering, especially when you presented that, well, I was wondering two things. The first is that you, in your presentation, you use a lot of anecdotal examples from France. So I was wondering if you have more systematic qualitative evidence of uh, the fact that demand from regulation follows from distrust and not the other way around, so that somebody who's living in a, in a, in a country embedded in regulation ends in distrusting basically the system. And the second relates to the graph you showed about flexicurity in trust, because what struck me there is the fact that I expect distinctively uh, trust to, to or social capital to change much at a much slower level than unemployment expenditure, for example. So in that case, you have one of the two variables at least that changes quite a lot, and you could do something in terms of lagging the, the values so to establish wh what direction the, the, the causal effect is going, because one could also imagine that a country that spends a lot of money for, for its own citizens in terms of redistributing uh, resources is actually building uh, trust, rather than the other way around. No, I totally agree. So actually, so I provided a lot of uh, evidence about France, because uh, I mean, France is a wonderful country to look at these kind of issues, but everything but I, I show a lot of cross-country uh, evidence, okay? Everything was linked to cross-country. Uh, uh, so the picture was about cross-country uh, correlation. And then when we try to control for country specificities, which could drive both distrust and regulation, we were precisely taking this into account by each time controlling for country fixed effects in the regression. So um, we, we can talk more about that, but I have the feeling that... Uh, uh, precisely this uh, cross-country regression at the individual level allow you to control for country fixed effect and to be quite safe in terms of uh, omitted variables or this kind of stuff. Uh, now, regarding the, the second point on the causal relationship between um, civicness and, uh, and uh, redistribution. So I totally agree that things could go both ways. And actually, there's a one of the main uh, important correlation in the literature, cross-country correlation, correlation is between the extent of equality within a country and the level of trust, meaning that countries where the level of the Gini is the lowest are also countries where trust is really high. Obviously, causality could go in both directions. It may be the case that because people trust each other a lot, they are ready to redistribute to, uh, to have a high share of redistribution, and this is why inequality is low. But it could be also the other around, meaning that because inequality is low, people really recognize in each other there is uh, the, the feeling of uh, belonging to the same community, and so uh, they will trust each other. So it is the level of equality which explains uh, trust. So it's quite hard. So there are a lot of work like by uh, Bo Rolstein or Uslaner or people like that trying to, to understand the causality issue. Uh, so typically here we were only focusing, uh, so the, the slide uh, showing this relationship So this slide belongs to another paper, to a paper with Pierre Cahu called uh, Civic Attitudes and uh, Civic Virtue in Labor Market Institution. And in this paper, we were only focusing on the causal relationship between going from civic attitudes towards 
uh, expenditure in favor of unemployed. And the way we were looking at this causal relationship is the following. You are totally right. The problem is that social expenditure could also affect civic attitudes, the current civic attitudes in the country. So we do not look at the current civic attitude. We are looking at the inherited civic attitude. And to do that, what the strategy is really easy. <coughs> you look at the general social survey, so this survey based on the US. Since you know the country of uh, origin of the respondents, you are able to measure, so these guys are living in the US, so they are no longer influenced by the current level of expenditure, but you can measure the level of civicness that they have inherited from their country of origin before social expenditure was implemented. And this is precisely this inherited component of civic attitude that we are <coughs> estimating in the US that we use as an instrument for the civic attitude in the current country. And this is how we make the point that there is a causal relationship. So if you are interested, it's an American Economic Journal paper also in uh, 2009. Yes, 2009. Well, sadly, we must bring things to a close. Yaron, um, how can I sort of thank you enough? You've given us a really, really excellent hour and a half. Thank you very Hugely much. Hugely stimulating. Um, and uh, we'd love to have you back again soon. Yeah, it's really a pleasure. Uh, thank and, you very much. Uh, thank you very, very much indeed. Okay, thank you.